today's episode, I have one of the co-founders of Establish the Edge, Pat Corain, from way back in the day. He is now with NBC Sports Sports Edge. Wrote a really good article on legendary running back upside. He actually penned the original kind of like evergreen introduction to that piece last season. Uh, and he picked it up this year looking at each running back with an ADP in the first two rounds and whether or not they have you know the requisite legendary upside. And we're going to talk to Pat about, you know, what even is legendary running back upside? Why do we need it? And how do we go about figuring out if a back has it? Before we get into that, want to note that this podcast is brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. They currently have their Best Ball Mania 3 tournament going on. Crazy $2 million grand prize to first place. Also have two other million dollar prizes up for grabs. Second place in the playoffs and first place in the regular season. If you use promo code ETR when you sign up, they're going to match your first deposit up to 100 bucks, And it's really a great spot to get prepared for your home leagues to play in these real money drafts on Underdog Fantasy. So again, Visit Underdog Fantasy, use promo code ETR for up to $100 in free entries. Pat, thank you so much for joining me. I want to throw it to you right off the bat here to, from like a macro perspective to talk about you know, just how you got into writing about the topic of legendary running back upside, exactly what that means and why it's important. Yeah, so the idea here with, you know, the kind of the running back position, you know, as you know, as listeners probably know, I like doing a lot of zero running back drafts. And, you know, I think that can be an effective strategy, but I don't only do that because you also have running backs that come from the early rounds that completely change the fantasy landscape. And we kind of know this intuitively, but I put some numbers to it and kind of just went back and reviewed everything since 2000, looking at these seasons where the win rates and kind of you know win rates from best ball but also just managed leagues being really dominated by a couple or sometimes just one running back hit and i call it legendary these legendary running back seasons because like they really do alter that year's fantasy landscape like you think of that running back when you think of that season like todd gurley 2017 todd gurley 2018 Christian McCaffrey in 2019, like those were the seasons. If you had those guys, like everything else was different. Your chances of winning your league, you basically had like a one in three chance of winning your league by just drafting that guy, which obviously gives you a huge advantage. Uh, you know, you've taken from one in 12 to one in three. So that kind of impact doesn't really happen at the wide receiver position. One, because wide receivers, while, you know, the early round wide receivers can score really well, it's rare that we get a, a season like Cooper Cup last year, where he was actually scoring like one of these legendary running backs. Typically, they're more like around, you know, a really good season might be like 20, 21 points per game at PPR. Whereas, you know, McCaffrey could easily score 25 points per game this season and be down from where he was a couple years ago. But the other thing is that at wide receiver, you also just see more scoring at the position as a whole. So, and kind of there's a, a broader swath of guys that all score pretty well. At running back, and we know this, I mean, this is part of the reason that running backs go early is that there's positional scarcity. There's only so many guys that can really score, you know, really any points that are worthwhile. But that makes the guys who completely go nuclear so, so valuable. It gives you this massive advantage. So, yeah, I mean, we saw that parlay a little bit with Jonathan Taylor last year. He didn't quite have that legendary season. In fact, you noted in your article that he fell a little bit short of that averaging 22.1 PPR points per game, but that was still the leading running back score. And you have, you're just going to have busts at running back. So if you're the top scoring running back and then a couple other teams are drafting, you know, Derek Henry, who gets hurt, Christian McCaffrey, who gets hurt all of a sudden that starts to look really good. And it looks really, really good. If you hit that legendary running back ceiling, uh, but yeah, let's let's dive into the guys this year. And we'll start with JT, who I've had, I have a tough time with JT. I feel like there's a contrarian bone in my body that wants to be a little bit on the JT fade side because he did only have those 22 points per game. His targets down the stretch were really low. But at the same time, we know he's immensely talented. And I saw Sean Siegel make the point that a lot of times, you know, third, fourth year running backs start to make a leap in their receiving area. And 
it's not like JT's a bad receiver. He they just don't do it because they have Naheem Hines, but it's not like he's not capable. His receiving efficiency numbers are actually really, really incredible. So how are you looking at JT? Yeah, I think JT is a very strong pick, obviously. Um, and I think, so to, to your point about Jonathan Taylor not quite getting to the legendary status last year, uh, I do want to make the point that like you can hit non-legendary outcomes that are still quite good for your team. Like Najee Harris was a hit last year, didn't come anywhere near the legendary running back threshold, but still you would have been happy to draft Najee Harris. The reason that I focus so much on these, the kind of the top, top end outcomes at running back, one, because actually hitting on them is, is so helpful, but two, the bust rates are really high at running back. And so if you're just looking for a guy to have like a good, not great season, to me, I'd rather draft a wide receiver. Like I'd rather go mm-hmm. where you have generally a higher positional floor. And so it's not like, you know, Najee Harris, I think again this year, we'll get to it, but like, you know, the guys who have the chances of having like a pretty solid season, definitely like n- no issues with taking them where you took them were, you know, overall pretty helpful to your team. Uh, you know, shooting for that, you're gonna you're gonna run into injuries at a higher rate at running back, and you're gonna run into what I call the silent killer scenario, which is a term that that uh, that I got from you. That they um, they don't like get hurt, and they look like they're doing fine, but they score like 14, 15 points a game at a really high ADP. They're not keeping up with the other running backs or the wide receivers or potential tight ends in those in those ranges, and uh, you end up just you know really getting hurt by that running back in a way that maybe isn't like completely obvious at first. So I think Taylor's probably a guy who could end up being somewhat of a silent killer if Naheem Hines takes on more of the receiving work and, you know, he doesn't go completely nuclear from a an efficiency perspective like he did last year. But at the same time, he's the best running back in football. He's behind a really good offensive line, which could end up being like an elite offensive line. He's looking at a potential uh, uh, upgrade in quarterback play, which I, I think he will have an upgrade in quarterback play, especially from just kind of like an offense, like a consistency of the offense. You're looking at a team that's a borderline playoff team that I think will really lean on him like they did last year. And this, it's, they're not a foolish coach team. I, I think they don't want to be as run heavy as they were last year, but at the same time, like they go watch all or go watch um, in-season hard knocks. If you're if you're concerned, they don't know he's their best player. <laughs> They're well aware that he's their best player. They think he's the best running back in the game. I think they'll end up riding him. So let's go to CMC. I think CMC is the 101 over JT. Um, I, I think at this point, I'm fine with JT 102. For a while there, I was getting kind of cute and think I'd rather go wide receiver. I did put out a tweet too that I thought like Austin Eckler was dangerously close to JT. We'll talk about Eckler in a second, but feel pretty good that CMC is the top back overall. And if you just look at his per game numbers when he's played, you know, last year, two years ago, they're insane. So we haven't seen the injuries affect him when he's been on the field. And most of what I've heard on the injury front from CMC is it's it's not stuff that we should be too concerned about. I think like people have this natural fear when a guy's been hurt that he's gonna get hurt again, but when you break it down in terms of the types of injuries he's had, like the, the concern level isn't that much higher than just like the average back getting hurt. No. And when you looked, when I went back and I looked at the seasons in the past that had led to these massive uh, scores from running backs, receptions and receiving ability is like the thing to really be focused on. And you can get there like Jonathan Taylor, where you're kind of sufficient in the receiving game. Dalvin Cook is the only running back since 2010, though, to get to 23-plus points per game, which is what I used as the, the cutoff, at you know playing 12-plus games. He's the only guy to get there with less than four receptions per game. So you can do it in kind of that you know hyper-efficient rushing, sufficient receiving workload, uh, but you've got to be an absolute superstar. And that, you know, I think we can make that bet with Jonathan Taylor. I don't have any, to me, I'm sort of like, if the market wants to take CMC one, I'll take CMC one and get my CMC exposure and I'll take JT two. When it was JT was always going one, I took JT first. Like, I'm not trying to like get a huge position on one of these guys versus the other because 
I do worry a little bit with CMC in terms of he's 26 years old, which is generally these guys, about two-thirds of them have been below 26. So you start to get, I think we're maybe, yeah, I, I tend to think we tend to stick with these running backs a little bit too long mm-hmm. in terms of their age. It can fall off very quickly at running back. We've seen that with Le'Veon Bell. We've seen that Melvin Gordon dropped from a legendary running back to kind of a mediocre guy very quickly. You saw that with David Johnson. He had the one season, was never never did it again. So, you know, you do want to keep age in mind with CMC. But if one of these guys gets to 27, 28 points per game, I think it can only be Christian McCaffrey. I don't think Jonathan Taylor has that kind of outcome in his – he can't get to that range because – he doesn't have the receiving. I mean, ability is a bit strong. I think he, he could if he had the backfield to himself, but he doesn't really have the path without an Iheem Hines injury. Christian McCaffrey, if he stays healthy and the status quo remains in place like that, is basically where he's headed. So, yeah, he's a I, very I like the strong point about pick. Yeah, I like the point about age because that's something that, as you said, it's like really easy to dismiss it until after it happens. You know, then, yep. then we're concerned after after it happens. Uh, for me, I'm still kind of a CMC 101 hardo. Just like doing DFS projections, I know we're going to be projecting him for like his average week is going to have a projection higher than Jonathan Taylor's points per game last season. Like that's yeah. his, yeah, that's his. Like he he almost doesn't even need a standard deviation run hot to to get there, uh, which which is kind of crazy. So I'm CMC 101 overall, but definitely really good points in terms of like the trajectory overall trajectories of the players and that macro. Uh, risk on them kind of balancing them out Eckler's someone I struggle with because you know we're in his age 27 season so you kind of have Mm -hmm. the age thing again with him he also scored what 20 touchdowns last year and he still didn't quite get to the legendary running back season he was behind Jonathan Taylor but at the same time I do love the combination of efficiency and pass catching ability in an offense that's going to be really up tempo they're going to throw the ball, which is good for him. They don't have much running back depth behind him with Isaiah Spiller, you know, starting off the season disappointing and injured and Josh Kelly and Larry Roundtree being quite terrible. So I'm pretty into Eckler still, um, but it is, it is, I am trying to figure out in my head, like how the math didn't quite work out last year that he finished at, you know, under 22 points. I know it, it is kind of surprising because he's got, he's got everything except the age that you're looking for and the size is generally a concern that's one thing that jumped out as well like if you're playing below 210 pounds if you came into the league actually below 210 pounds that's a red flag but that's something that you can overcome with a sufficient goal line role and and honestly the weight probably doesn't even matter it's just that coaches tend to play big guys around the goal line and that was exactly what happened to Austin Eckler until last season and last season I was I think overly skeptical uh, skeptical of Austin Eckler's chances of, of getting uh, to a legendary season because I was like, well, he's never been used around the goal line. But all that had to happen was for that to change under a new coaching staff. And he was basically there. And that's a, he, he got used to the goal line. And he's, you know, he's been pretty decent at the goal line. So that makes sense. The other backs behind him are not good. So it makes sense to use him in every high leverage situation. And based, based on what Spiller's done so far, I would expect them to continue doing that. And, uh, you know, it's not just that Spiller is... Uh, dealing with an injury right now it's that Josh Kelly was ahead of him prior to that and so is Spiller really going to make a big play for high leverage touches in this offense I'm starting to become skeptical of that and this offensive line also could be elite and one of the other things that's helpful I mean this is intuitive but it did show show to be helpful with uh, some of these legendary seasons is if you've got an extremely efficient passing offense that also really helps out. And I think, obviously, with Eckler, it should help him out in particular because he's a part of that passing offense. So behind a great offensive line, you know, they're, they're probably going to be leading in a lot of games. They could have a much better defense, which maybe isn't ideal for Eckler in terms of you know his ability to, to catch as many passes as we'd like. But if no one's challenging him for the goal line role, you know, they could score a ton of touchdowns playing from ahead. You know, Eckler salting away games maybe on some some checkdowns where Herbert knows he doesn't have to push the ball super downfield because uh, they've already got a lead and stuff. So I think he is also a target. I think the market has this right with the top three running backs. Uh, I have no, no issues with any of them. 
Yeah. Big question for Eckler is, can he repeat that 2019 receiving season where his efficiency was a little bit better? And he, I mean, he caught 92 balls and like that's sort of, you know, your leap from last year to get to the legendary running back season. Next, we have Delvin Cook. Delvin Cook has been someone ETR has been high on. You have him at target, but only if he slips into the second round, which doesn't happen too frequently. Sometimes the order gets mixed up in these higher stakes leagues, like at the one, two turn, uh, most home leagues he's going to go in the first round. The concern with Cook is, you know, the combination, I guess, of age and receiving ability. I don't even know if it's receiving ability or just, I mean, he's never hit four plus receptions per game. And you already noted he's one of, you know, the few backs that's been able to get to the legendary running back without the that only type since of, 2010. The only one since think 2010. Part of it is I think the game's changing a little bit. Like you used to be able to get there like Sean Alexander and Larry Johnson and stuff where you're just like, getting an insane rushing workload. I think that, I think those days are over. So the the receiving stuff I think is getting more important. Yeah. And then with Dalvin, I guess this, the upside would be that this is like heavily concentrated offense and perhaps he does catch more balls with the new coaching staff in here. What's your Dalvin take? Yeah. Dalvin is, is like a scary fade, which is why I kind of hedged a little bit and said target if he falls the second round, because uh, you could see the offense, the passing offense being much more efficient. You could see them kind of using him like Todd Gurley. I don't think O'Connell was there in the Todd Gurley Rams days, but, you know, certainly kind of a similar type of setup to the offense where he's this hyper-efficient rusher. Um, and also, I was just kind of looking like, you know, he does play the Giants in Week 16. You could see the, the Vikings just rolling them. As I kind of, as I do this article, I... I write out like a scenario as if it's occurred, you know, in the yeah. scenario, his upside. I love that. Yeah. yeah. I say, you know, he, he, uh, he scores four touchdowns against the floundering giants, which seems pretty realistic. I, the reason I do this is because it's kind of fun to write it out and then see like how, how realistic does this feel? How realistic does the downside scenario feel? And Dalvin cook burying you because you faded him for not catching enough passes and being a little older than you like. That feels pretty realistic to me. Like, I think he can get, to maybe he you know maybe he's more of like a 21 22 points per game type of guy but where he's going in drafts I think he can make you pay for fading him he's a guy I like a little bit more in best ball I've talked about about best ball win rates and stuff in the setup for this article but I I do focus it more on managed leagues where I think getting the elite wide receiver is even a bigger advantage and hitting on an okay but not great season at running back doesn't help you nearly as much as it does in best ball. So for me, I'm taking Dalvin Cook in best ball. I'm not like he's not a major target, but I'm definitely mixing him in. I'm not I don't I don't consider him a best ball fade. In managed leagues, I'm being a little bit more picky with the running backs I'm selecting and I would love to get him at a value, but I also think there's enough risk factors with Cook with the the receptions, the age, the the idea that, you know, Maybe they don't just completely ride him. They've got a capable backup, a very capable backup in Alexander Madison. They're moving away from the kind, this kind of run-heavy focused offense. They're also got you know Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen. Maybe they maybe they pass a ton in the red zone and around the goal line. You need to score a lot of touchdowns to hit one of these seasons. And so if they if that is their red zone approach, that could also be a real problem for Cook. So there's enough risk factors that basically I want them at a value. There's legitimate science behind your methodology in terms of forcing yourself to basically, uh, it's basically like a, a debrief of like what happened, like if we were wrong, what happened, if we were right, what happened in terms of actually writing out what the legendary running back season was or what the downside running back season was. So that's, that's a really good exercise for anyone out there to kind of force yourself to confront your biases. I do have one question, question with Dalvin. I completely agree in general that we need to be pickier about our running backs and manage versus best ball. If you're in a softer home league though, do you think that starts to revert where you can just beat people on like micro takes all the way throughout the draft? And it like, I almost wonder if we don't need that extra bit of upside. I was just curious your thoughts on that with a guy like Dalvin, who's a bit of a tweener. I do. Yeah. I think there's, if you know, you're going to be able to just kind of win in like rounds, seven through 12 on like every one of your picks, then I would say hit like just kind of hitting on an, a good, but not legendary season is probably 
more helpful because, you know, a lot of the guys that you're probably out drafting your league mates on are maybe younger guys. They're more like breakout mm-hmm. upside guys. You're not, maybe your hit rate's not going to be perfect on those guys, but they're, they're leaving you upside that really shouldn't be in that part of the draft. And so, you know, if you have like a plug and play starter out of your first round pick and, uh, or even if he busts, frankly, you're going to make up for it later. So you can kind of take on a little bit more risk for like a little bit less reward because you know you're going to get just an incredible uh, array of value picks later in the draft. I think there's something to that, yeah. We'll go to Najee. Najee's a tough one. On one hand, he has the the workhorse type role that we want to see from a round one running back. And I do think that that's, you know, a definitive skill. You know, one of the reasons why I'm a little gun shy on Damian Pierce. Not, granted, he's like nowhere near this conversation, but like we don't know if he can be a workhorse back, like just based on his workload in college and whatnot. Whereas Najee, we knew even coming into the NFL, even before he did it last year, that like he he's he's got the skill set to be a workhorse back. He showed it last year. My concern with him a little bit was, but my major concern with him, honestly, is that the offense is still not good, even though it's better without Ben Roethlisberger. And it's in a way that takes receptions away from him where Big Ben was in a pass happy offense with a lot of short dot stuff. We had that one game that Najee Harris caught like 18 balls or something like, like something like 17 number. targets. Yeah. You, you yeah. wouldn't even believe it. If I told you, um, <laughs> I'm going to look it up after I throw it to you. But if that receiving comes down to like good, but not great, like that's going to be a problem for him. It does, and also one of the things that um, is really important with the running backs is that they have to be efficient. Like if you look at like an expected points model, no expected points model is going to you know on a like no one's no one ever averages twenty three points per game in expected points. You know, like Rotovis PFF, they basically create the value of the workload that running back gets in expected fantasy points. There's just no way that you're you're hitting all of that in terms of just getting enough goal line touches, enough targets, and all that. So it really comes down to the only way you can get above 23 points per game is by doing more than expected based on your workload. And Najee really fell flat there as a rookie in a way that we expected him to. Like if you if you weren't that psyched right. about Najee Harris as a prospect, it's because he doesn't hit big plays and he's a capable but not particularly dynamic receiver. And that's exactly who he was in his rookie season. His yards per route run was 0.97. That's not good. That's a poor yards per route run. He gets targets. He's going to be out there on on all the receiving downs. I don't expect him to lose a ton of snaps to anybody. I expect to be very similar to last year. But you are in a situation where the offensive line stinks. Brandon Thorne had, had him as the 32nd ranked offensive line on ETR, I mean that's not ideal. You'd you'd love to have a you'd love to have an offensive line in the top five. That's where you see a lot of these legendary seasons coming from is where the, the line is just dominant. To have the worst offensive line in the league potentially is a, a major issue for Harris. You also have I think the best case scenario being a rookie quarterback. That's not great. You've got maybe a little bit more mobility to uh the quarterbacks that you know could potentially Create maybe a little bit more rushing efficiency for Harris if they utilize the quarterbacks uh, in designed rushes. But maybe you also just look at more scrambling. And Roethlisberger, as we know, to your point, getting the ball out quickly, not scrambling, doing everything he can to take to not take hits. I don't think that'll be Pickett. I think Pickett's going to be willing to scramble, pick up yards with his legs. That should hurt Najee Harris's volume-based receiving profile. Um so to me, it's like with Najee, you, you cannot completely write him off because he's a second-year player, and that's one of the things that jumped out. Second-year players, kind of like we expect at wide receivers, you know, one, we've seen a lot of big seasons from second-year running backs. We've also seen running backs add things to their game in their second year. And in, in that this got me in trouble with Antonio Gibson a little bit last year. But you see, uh, you know, guys who maybe weren't like – crazy receiving levels take it to another level in terms of you know getting or getting more goal line work when they hadn't gotten a ton of goal line work their their roles can grow within an offense in their second year where we don't tend to see that outside of the second year so second year is really nice 
But Najee doesn't really have much room to expand. He already had everything as a rookie. Yeah. So the second-year breakout concept is a little bit harder with him in terms of the workload. Obviously, in terms of the efficiency he could get there, we saw with Le'Veon Bell that he had big jumps in terms of his yards per out run, in terms of his breakaway yards. Bell more than doubled his breakaway yards from his first to his second season. Maybe we get the same thing from Harris. Maybe, you know, it's a better designed running game utilizing Trubisky's mobility to begin the year and then pickets. Uh, You know, I I think this is all plausible, but it does feel like you're kind of bending over backwards to imagine a scenario where Harris has a legendary season. I think it's very likely that he scores, you know, 17, 18 points a game. I fade him. That hurts me. But I also think you're taking on a ton of risk at running back, no matter who you're drafting, because of the injury rates. And Najee's, I mean, the whole play is that he's going to get an an insane amount of work. That's not always good at running back. Every touch increases your injury rate. So, uh, yeah, I think all in all, uh, you know, I I was in the second round of the main event, did select Najee, fell like all the way to the 205 or something. So I don't think Najee's bad at every price, but I didn't hedge here. I called him a fade. Yeah, I I do feel like there's kind of a break-even point where we do have to... And you brought up the Antonio Gibson thing last year where, and, and he kind of skyrocketed where it's like, uh, there starts to become a break-even point with price where it's like more acceptable to take on the risk or it's like too rich to take on the upside. But it's yeah. really hard to figure that out. And I think it's like pretty subjective. I looked up the Najee game. It was week three, 19 targets, 14 catches for 102 yards. But he had... You know, two other games where he caught six balls, nothing more than that. And he had two games in the 40s as far as receiving yards, uh, nothing else. He, he didn't hit 50 yards or higher in any of the I also other games. Don't, I don't think it's good they have Deontay Johnson, Chase Claypool looking like he's playing out of the slot. So, you know, kind of an easy sort of check down, quick throw option, the big body guy over the middle. Pat Fryermuth had a really good uh, rookie season. And George Pickens is lighting up camp. So... You, when you have that scenario, is this team really going to be looking to get Najee that involved? Is How many checkdowns are really going to be necessary that aren't to Deontay Johnson or Claypool, who are probably going to be decently open, like or to Fryermuth? Like, you know, if he was on a team where there was, if he was on the Panthers and it's DJ Moore or Najee, way more interesting. I just think the setup, yeah. the offensive setup is, is about as bad as it could get. Let's go to Derrick Henry. Henry was someone last year that in a vacuum it wasn't the archetype i liked the thing i did like about him was just and we kind of saw it play out is sometimes these guys that project to score a lot of points just run a little bit hot and and even if they didn't have the right right archetype if things break a little bit right you can you know and for him it was he was involved a little bit more in the passing game and then they kind of just went nuts with his overall touches to your point about Najee relying on a back that like needs all these touches though Henry does end up getting hurt. How predictable that is, you know, it's tough to see. I'm out on him completely this year after being like acceptable of him last year. And there's a couple of reasons why. One, he's coming off injury. Two, he's a year older and he was already at, you know, the age part that we start to worry. This can be his age 28 season. And three, this team is is headed in the wrong direction. They lose AJ Brown. And the, the efficiency of the passing game kind of let them do a lot of the stuff that worked really well for Derrick Henry in terms of positive game script, tons of rush attempts, lots of goal line touches. So I, I'm, I feel pretty strongly that Henry is a fade where he's going right now. Um, and I know you have him as a fade as well. I do have him as a fade and he turns 29 in January. So he's an old 28. Uh, yeah. I think if you're betting on a guy to just handle an insane workload coming off a foot injury, turning 29, I think before the season ends, right? Uh, it's it's not ideal. So, yeah, I think, you know, you could see him burying you. He was about to bury us last year. You know, he's The interesting thing is that he had over 23 points per game last season. So he was kind of the guy uh, that, you know, could have been the legendary back last year, which would have been a bad look for me. <laughs> you know, I was like, he definitely doesn't fit the archetype. And then it, it was basically Henry last year. But, yeah, he gets hurt, which I do think, Obviously, that's not predictable, but it's not helpful if you're trying to get there to just get loaded up with low-value touches, which is what happened to Henry. His rushing efficiency really tailed off last season. I was not impressed with the the offensive design 
last year. They did less play action. They seemed to, you know, just ride Henry as if there was no risk of him getting hurt. And uh, they did use him a little bit more as a receiver, which I like to see, but nowhere near the four, nowhere near the four receptions per game. He's, I think, career high 1.1 receptions per game. So to project him to hit four is, you know, it's it's silly. No one would do it. Um, And the offensive line there is a a real problem, I think. It seems like it could be bad. So if that's the case, if the Passing offense is not as efficient as it has been. You know, he just looks like a guy. It's like very much a volume-based play, very much kind of in that silent killer mold where he keeps getting the work. He doesn't, you know, completely fall off or anything. He's scoring you 15 points a game or whatever, but you paid a lot to get that 15 points per game. You passed on a potential huge season from... Diggs or Kelsey or one of the other running backs, you know, or Devontae Adams, whatever it is, um, if kind of anyone from that range emerges, you pay you paid a lot for pretty replaceable production in a managed league. Yeah, and I'm I'm more okay than others in terms of taking backs that are dependent on the offense being good, but I need to have a little bit more faith the offense is gonna be good than I have in Tennessee. Uh, so, so that's an issue. Let's go to DeAndre Swift, who really exciting, dynamic player, has the the pass catching upside that we're looking for. His rushing metrics have been pretty bad, surprisingly. Um, he was you know minus point three six rush yards over expectation per attempt last season. How are you viewing Swift? Swift is interesting because he's very good at some things and he's very bad at other things. He's not good between the tackles. That shows up in his rush yards over expected. He's a really good breakaway runner, though. And that's something that I think is really exciting behind what could be an awesome offensive line. This is, to me, he he does kind of jump out as a potential legendary back because you think about, you know, scenarios where, yeah, maybe he's not hitting every run exactly right. You know, hitting the hole. I think what it was in the on hard knocks, he I think scores a touchdown in the preseason. And Deuce Staley's mad because like he didn't hit the right hole. He like bounced it outside. I think that's gonna be a struggle for him. He's a big play runner, and he's probably going to lose carries to Jamal Williams, uh, or to Craig Reynolds or whoever else because they don't they, they they're getting frustrated that he's not, you know, running the plays perfectly between the tackles or whatever. But I do think there's Potential improvement. He's a he's going into his third year, so I think it would be reasonable to expect that he's kind of still growing as a player. You're also looking at an improvement in the offensive line if it stays healthy this year. That should really help between the tackles running. Um, and then you're also looking at a player who not just is a big play rusher, but adds big plays through the passing game. It's kind of a reverse Nazi situation where we we would like him to get more volume. Um, he's kind of already there, but like you know, but more the better in terms of the receiving volume, but he's, he has flashed pretty good receiving efficiency and the ability to hit big plays through the air. And I think he's a pretty good fit with Jared Goff in terms of, we know Jared Goff likes to throw short. There's some target competition for that with Hawkinson and Amon Ross St. Brown, but um, you're also looking at an offense that down the stretch will have Jamison Williams, will have DJ Shark, maybe even, you know, a Jared Goff offense will the defense will be respecting the deep ball because Jamison Williams has this elite speed. And that's a dynamic that I think is pretty interesting. If you think about like defenses aren't able to crowd the box and just, and just, you know, say, we're not going to let Jared Goff beat us deep because he might actually be able to with Jamison Williams. As we get into the fantasy playoffs, elite offensive line play, Deandre Swift could rip off a ton of long gains on screens, you know, ripping off big, uh, big runs against two high safeties as they try to uh, protect themselves against the elite speed of Jameson Williams. So that's kind of a fun element of it for me, uh, as you think about Williams coming back and changing the dynamic a little bit. And then I think also, as you just look at the schedule down the stretch, he gets the Jets, Panthers, and Bears in weeks 15 through 17. I mean, that's nice. elite offensive line play, the Lions a little bit, you know, they're, they're a frisky, you know, kind of 500-ish team, you know, playing hard at the end of the season. They could be, I mean, Swift could be racking up touchdowns over that stretch. 
he's one of those guys where it's like maybe he only scores 18, 19 points a game before that stretch, and then we're just like, if you didn't have DeAndre Swift in the fantasy playoffs, what was the point? Yeah, and Swift, to your point, he was 10th in breakaway run percentage, according to PFF last season. Tony Pollard was 9th, and he was someone who the previous year also scored like poorly or average in rush yards over expectation and then took a big leap in that category year over year. So maybe we see the same thing with DeAndre Swift. After Swift, we have Saquon Barkley, who, man, the, it was fun fun earlier in the offseason when he was going to the third, and it was like... it was. It was not only was it an easy selection, but it made roster construction so easy. Be like, I'm just gonna do hero RB build right on draft running back to the third round. But uh, here we are, and he's going as early as the one two turn. I think you did you take him at the end of one in a first round in a, in a main or no? We did, yeah. We took him yeah. at the end of the first round in the main event. We went, uh, we went the double reach. We got Saquon Pitts, and then we got AJ Brown. Waller. So we got the double value. It's a pretty, pretty unique main event team. I like that. Yeah. With Barkley, man, I mean, it, there's some similarities to CMC where I think people are maybe overstating the injury concerns and not focused enough on the upside. We know he was a generational prospect, but he really was. He was like one he of was. the best running brag prospects that we had. And the coach combine that with the coaching change, which has to be super plus EV. And I'm pretty optimistic with Barkley where I'm not going to be stunned if in redraft 2023, like he's a consensus top three pick. It's he, he basically just has to have one really good year and he's there. Uh, I'm guessing that's how you see it, given that you invested some first round draft capital into him. Yeah, I and, you know, maybe check out this one. Uh, well, don't if you're if you're worried, you might get too excited. I had someone tweet at me going, I have the. The 103, I think I'm going to take Barkley now. <laughs> I was like, no, don't do that, though. <laughs> like, I did enjoy writing <laughs> the upside yeah. scenario. but I, yeah, there's At a, a certain risk. point, the price changes the dynamic. Yeah. yeah, but I do think there's a lot of upside here, and it's a very simple, clean upside case uh, for Barkley. It's basically he stays healthy. They use him a ton as a receiver, which makes a ton of sense. It's a smart thing to do. We think this is a smart coaching staff. He gets all the work. Matt Breed is the backup. Brian Dable gave Devin Singletary 100% of snaps against the Chiefs in the playoffs. Like, he is willing to ride one running back. I don't think we should be concerned, really, that, you know, Barkley's going to see 60, 65% of snaps be kind of a 1A. Like, to who? <laughs> you know, he, right. he almost has to. So you're getting kind of the Najee thing where he's going to have all the work, but you're also getting a much more plausible scenario to him being really efficient. I think, you know, we could see him having like 1.5, 1.6 yards per hour run, where again, Najee was below one. It's a huge difference. Um, and the touchdowns is probably the biggest thing. Like even his upside scenario, I said, you know, he scores just 14 touchdowns, but he tops a hundred receptions, tops 1.5 yards per out run. He doesn't hit a career high in rushing yards, but he already had a legendary season when he had that career high in rushing yards. So he could actually fall off a little bit in rushing yards, not have an elite rushing touchdown total, but because he can do so much through the air, both in terms of volume and being efficient on that volume, he can hit over 23 points per game without setting career highs on the ground. It's pretty, pretty exciting. It's just like, do they use him enough as a receiver? Does he get all the receiving work? I think the answer to that is probably yes. You you don't have a good offensive line. You don't have an efficient passing offense, but you might have more commitment to the pass and more commitment to more intelligent usage of Barkley, which you know is probably enough when you're talking about a guy who's flashed the talent he has. Let's go to Mixon next. Uh, the ETR ranks in PPR, and you both agree that he's a fade. I'm a little bit more into him if you're playing like a standard type league where the pass catching isn't going to hurt him as much, but we're kind of talking PPR legendary upside here. And Mixon gets some, I mean, he gets a decent amount of pass work in the base role, but the team has been you know, quite clear that he's not their passing down back uh, in terms of the, both the hurry up offense and on third downs. And that, that really caps the upside. and you know, to me, that's that that's basically the argument against him is it's really that capped upside in the receiving game. Yeah, and I think it's a very, very strong argument personally against Joe Mixon 
Uh, he had 9% of his snaps last year on third and fourth down. Uh, you've kind of, we've talked about this. You've said, you know, the case for Mixon is somewhat similar to the case for Jonathan Taylor. It's just basically Taylor has a much clearer path to efficiency. And I think that that understates it because Jonathan Taylor, he saw 21% of his snaps on third and fourth down, outsnapping Naheem Hines 161 to 83 on those downs. Mixon was outsnapped 175 to 78 by P. Ryan on third and fourth down. And Chris Evans also mixed in for 43 snaps. We could see Evans' role increasing over the year. Maybe that doesn't really affect Mixon. Maybe that's all just coming from P. Ryan, but it certainly isn't good. Because we need Mixon to get some of those third third down snaps back. So if Evans, you know, is involved, it's just one more guy that's kind of keeping the status quo in, in place for the third down roll or the lack of third down roll for Mixon. That that really locks him out of any plausible scenario of getting there in receiving volume. Like at least with Taylor, Naheem Hines like mixes in throughout. Taylor isn't completely well, and, locked out. And of Naheem Hines could downs. get hurt and right. Whereas if P. Ryan gets hurt, it's Evans or vice versa. Exactly. It, it, this is a philosophical thing with the Bengals. They don't really see Mixon as that guy. Yeah. That's a that's the, a real, real problem. The nice thing for Mixon would be I think it's I think it's a really solidified offense in terms of being good. You know, the Derrick Henry conversation, like our concerns over the passing efficiency. Uh, we don't have those concerns with Cincinnati, and we also have a huge upgrade for them on the offensive line. They're 11th in Thorns' offensive line, uh, which is, yep. you know, I think, po- quite. Po- I think it's probably his biggest year-over-year change. Um, so that's that's good for him. Another dock against Mixon. You and Peter Oversat, we did the FFPC main event show, and you guys were talking about Cincinnati's playoff schedule. It's not good. Their average team total dips a lot. And you can talk yourself into the schedule being okay from a passing perspective because it's teams like Tampa Bay, Buffalo, where you could see them having to throw a lot more and maybe you lose some efficiency, but you pick up some passing volume. That's It's not a good schedule for a running back, like almost no matter how you cut it, unless Cincinnati's just that good that it doesn't matter. Um, but you're asking for a lot in that case. I think also with the offensive line, like if you look at the PFF grades, they weren't horrific in terms of the run blocking. They're much worse in terms of their pass blocking. So I do wonder if like the offensive line upgrades might allow them to be more pass heavy, you know, since that's the part of the Mm -hmm. line that could potentially improve the most. And we know the strength of their team is the passing game is Joe Burrow and those receivers. We also saw Zach Taylor be pretty pass. I think they had a 4% pass rate of expected in 2020. So they could, they were much more balanced last year, but they could actually you know, it wouldn't be crazy that they just do what they did two years ago uh, before Joe Burrow, uh, you know, got blown up and towards ACL because of bad blocking. So I think if they get the blocking sorted, there are paths to them being more pass heavy. And again, it, Mixon's not out there on the obvious passing down stuff. So on the on the positive side, Mixon has shown some really exciting breakaway ability throughout his career. Uh, he... He topped 500 breakaway yards in 2018. Maybe he gets back there because he's seeing a ton of two high shells. You know, maybe teams yeah. are just saying, you're not beating us with T. Higgins and Jamar Chase. They're willing to accept Mixon running all over them because they know it's kind of the lesser two evils. And this this team could score a ton of touchdowns. I do think that's Mixon's job. So Mixon comes in and just punches in a bunch of touchdowns. You can get there, but he... I think really has to have the Dalvin Cook role. There's no, like Taylor, I could see maybe, again, probably takes a Naheem Hines injury, but Taylor could get to four plus receptions per game in some of his higher end outcomes. I don't think Mixon really has any path to that. And so you're betting on something that's happened once since 2010. We'll go to Alvin Kamara, another guy in the Barkley Bowl who is kind of an easy take when people were freaking out over potential suspension risk. And now his price is getting a little more expensive and I'm really torn with him going kind of more like the one, two turn, or at least early second in most drafts. On one hand, we've seen some past like high upside efficiency from Kamara and the most important part, the pass catching on the other hand, you know, age 27 season, this will be his sixth season in the year. It's had a pretty full workload. The last five, the efficiency everywhere dropped off. And I don't know, I'm just, 
still skeptical how this offense is going to operate. And I think we should definitely be taking the target share expectations down for Kamara, given the additions that they've made at receiver and also just the quarterback switch. When I do this, you know, and I, I think about who my target should be, I do think about who can bury me and if I fade them. And Kamara definitely could bury me. So he, so I put him as a cold sweat inducing fade because I really do worry that calling him a fade this year could be a terrible, terrible mistake. And, you know, if you disagree with my analysis and want to take him, no problems. But I did call him a fade because his rushing efficiency cratered last year. The offensive line play might not be as good as, as we've come to expect from the Saints. And you're, uh, you're looking at receiving efficiency that was also down last year and receiving volume that was down. He had four receptions per game with Jameis Winston, below that without Jameis Winston. It's not the Breeze era Saints. We're not maybe going to see him just get like a ton of, you know, Eckler, McCaffrey type volume. I, I don't know that he's, he was used much more traditionally last year and he was not efficient and he's older. You know, this is again, like that, that existential risk here with the age very much applies to a 20, uh, 27 year old, McCaffrey or not McCaffrey 27 year old Camara. so that's just ultimately you know with the age stuff like I, I didn't penalize Eckler that much for it but I'm looking at Camara, and it's not just age it's the fact that his rushing efficiency cratered last season to ignore that even you know in the mid-second it just feels like it, it's tough because there's not a ton of opportunity cost there and that's where I'm like you know if you want to take him take him but I think I, I'm just more comfortable going in another direction with, uh, with a guy who's shown signs of decline and is past the age where we normally see these seasons. Yeah, we'll go to Aaron Jones, who to some extent is similar mold as Alvin Kamara. You know, he's really efficient rusher historically, fell off a little bit last year, and he's in his age 28 season, I believe. With him, too, we're projecting a little bit more in terms of the assumptions in the receiving game. He He's been a very good receiver. He hasn't been the volume type receiver that Elvin Kamara has been in the past. If you look at the splits, I, this whole the splits with and without Devontae Adams, I think like highlights his upside and is also overstated to a point. But he does have pretty significant receiving upside. And you look at this offense and like the Vegas expectations for them are still really good. And like, maybe Vegas is just wrong, but if Vegas is remotely right, this team's still going to be scoring points somehow. And the way my brain thinks it's like, well, it's gotta be Aaron Jones. Cause we, we just don't have much juice in the passing game. Um, maybe Romeo Dobbs is, is good. And if he is, that's probably still good for Aaron Jones. Cause it's not like they're loaded with depth behind him. So thoughts on Aaron Jones. Aaron Jones would be like a very classic example of, I think, a guy who who is a good bet to get to a sub-legendary but still very helpful season. Um, you know, it's all set up. You know, he's going to be he's going to have an important role on a high-scoring offense. He's going to see targets. He He's a very good receiver. But at the same time, does he have any path to getting to the 23-plus points per game? It's like you really, really got to squint. He has to set career it's, highs in a bunch of yeah. stuff. I'm like where I struggle is I do, and again, this is where like getting the weeds with the projections can hurt you too much. Like I, I think it's a very similar workload to DeAndre Swift on a team that probably scores more, but obviously on a macro standpoint, the trajectories of the careers, just in terms of age, are very different. The trajectories of careers, but I also think the rushing upside, right? Like you could imagine DeAndre Swift taking on more of the rushing workload. He's not going to be like a, you know, getting all of it, but he he's so good in the receiving game uh, and the offensive line is good enough. So you could have overall good rushing efficiency that maybe you don't need just all the rushing workload for him. Similar with Jones, but does he have any path to owning the, the complete goal line role with AJ Dillon there? Probably not. You know, he's he's probably a one B rusher in, in a lot of a lot of scenarios, while a clear one A receiver out of the backfield. Um, you know, maybe he's maybe he's a one A the whole season as as the rusher too, but he doesn't really have a path, I think, to kind of consolidating the rushing workload because he's older than we want, and AJ Dillon seems to be ascending. So that's where I'm I'm saying like 
There, a lot needs to go right. For any one of these guys to hit 23-plus points per game, a lot needs to go right. They need to score mm-hmm. a ton of touchdowns. They need to be. They need to put up like 1,300 rushing yards and also get a ton of work through the receiving game. And, you know, if they don't get that work, then they need to put up like 1,800 rushing yards. Like, you need massive production to have the type of season that people think of your name when they think of that season. Like, we were talking about really, really high-end results here. So, if you're just trying to think through, can Aaron Jones do that for you? I do think it's a pretty thin bet. That doesn't make him a terrible selection because you are getting to the point where he's in the late second. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons to like what he can do from a median perspective. And if you're not that psyched about Debo and if you're not that psyched about Tyreek Hill and you probably get T. Higgins and A.J. Brown in the third round of your league, like, I don't have any issues with going with Kamara and Jones. I'm not really – I'm more into the Kamara side. I'd rather make the Kamara bet that he just – you know, the – he kind of gets used like Kamara again, but I get it. If you like Jones, I have him as a fade. Javante Williams is one of the more interesting conversations to me. The one game he started last year, he had, you went 23 carries for 102 yards, had nine targets. It went six for 76 scored uh, a touchdown in that game and just put up a ton of fantasy points against the chiefs. I believe it was a night game and we had released a prop play on the under for his combined rushing and receiving yards, that did not go well for us. Uh, so I remember it quite vividly. But Javonta Williams, I mean, what's what's tough here is I think the legendary upside is quite clear. It's he buries Melvin Gordon either due to Melvin Gordon's health or that he's just not a big part of the offense because Javonta Williams is so much better. And now he's in an offense that's actually good because of – Russell Wilson, and that's just a huge shift. And this team's good. They're exciting offensively. And Javonta Williams coming into last year's draft class, we knew he could break tackles. We knew he was a pretty good receiving back. So he can kind of do it all. But at the same time, a lot of the backs in front of him have decent upside cases, and they don't have necessarily uh, you know, a, a back there that they could be splitting with carries to start the year. So it's very difficult to understand how to weigh kind of the, the two sides of the coin there. Yeah. I mean, he feels like maybe a little bit of a better in best ball type of pick to me too, where, you know, you're getting kind of the usable weeks out of him, the probably a lot of sub legendary type of weeks early in the season, but maybe, you know, down the stretch, he is just that guy and he kind of has taken over the backfield or, you know, there's a Melvin Gordon injury and he consolidates the backfield um, but yeah, I was actually, I thought I'd be more excited about Williams, uh, when I was writing this up, I thought he would be like a clear target for me in terms of the legendary upside. Melvin Gordon was pretty good last year and Melvin Gordon is used as a receiver. Javante Williams is a capable receiver, but you know, he split time in, uh, at UNC with Michael Carter being the receiving back there. I think it would be pretty reasonable that he doesn't get like a, a complete receiving workload. The offensive line in Denver is not that good. So as as much as I like his rushing profile, it breaks a lot of tackles, he can hit big plays. I don't know that his rushing efficiency is going to be like super off the charts. You know, I don't know that they're just going to be like dictating at the goal line and just punching in, a, you know, he was super inefficient last year at the goal line. Both him and Gordon were, and that could continue this year. Again, you have to score a ton of touchdowns. You can't do everything but score touchdowns. You have to score, unless you're mm-hmm. going to catch 100 balls like you know maybe Barkley does, you have to score a ton of touchdowns. That, I think, is, is a big red flag for Williams' profile in terms of getting to 23-plus uh, points per game. So I like him. I like him uh, because you know maybe he has that stretch, kind of like, like a sort of a Nick Chubb bet in years past where it's like maybe he isn't that guy for the whole season, but... Man, when it comes together for this guy, it can really come together. I think Williams fits that mold, but I actually put him as a target when he falls to the third in managed leagues, um, which you know is sort of my sad way of saying he's probably probably fade. I think you want to get that wide receiver in that rank. Some really good wide receivers going in the late second or early third. Yeah, and we did have a stretch where he was going in the third, and I don't know, the market has started to... I feel like they've barbelled running backs a little bit. They're starting to take these running backs in the first two rounds earlier and then they're starting to avoid the dead zone running backs a little bit more and it, it makes strategy a bit more difficult and we get Leonard Fournette at the two three turn and 
Man, I feel like for net, I saw Al Smizzle tweet the other day about Christian McCaffrey. I think maybe it was in today about Christian McCaffrey, where he's like the I told you so player. Like he either stays healthy and scores, you know, 26 yeah. fantasy points per game and it's I told you so, or he gets hurt and it's I told you so from the other side. I sort of feel like it's that way with Leonard Fournette. They, you know, if he stays healthy and Rashad White just ends up being, you know, a backup player, he's it's it's you know, like almost impossible for him to be bad. And I do think he has a touch of legendary upside just because the high value touches in the offense targets and touchdowns. Uh, but I also wouldn't be shocked at all if, you know, the Rashad white cut into the base receiving work. And if he does that immediately, the legendary upside is off the table because you need all of that volume. I think it's almost off the table to begin with. I don't really think he has, when I wrote up this case, I was actually surprised one to surprise me and I'm not a Fournette guy. So, you know, maybe you could you can call BS. I was surprised, but I genuinely was surprised at just like how easy it was to kind of be like, yeah, this is or how hard it was to create the legendary case for him. Mm -hmm. I think partly because he crushed from a much lower ADP last year. But, you know, he's coming off a career high in terms of fantasy points per game, but only 18.3 points per game. So we're talking about five additional PPR points per game that he needs to find somewhere. And if you look at his profile, the only place that he can really get them from is probably touchdowns because he's another guy that wasn't playing a ton of the third down stuff that he was still ceding some of that to Giovanni Bernard. Um, he, I, I shouldn't say he's not playing a ton, but he barely edged out Giovanni Bernard, who saw 93 snaps on third and fourth down. Fournette saw 103. And now you've got Rashad White who could not only mix in for some of those, but I think could be a major thorn in his side in kind of like a Rex burkhead type way where he gets mixed in. Uh, Rex Burkhead from the Patriots days, not the Houston days, but mixes in as, on early downs, but gets targets. He could get like a couple targets per game once he comes into his own, even if he isn't playing a ton on third down because he is a receiving back. He's also big enough at 214, and he's got decent speed as well, sub 4-540, where he could be involved as a rusher, but kind of in a classic Tom Brady uh, fashion, catching passes as well. So I think Fournette is a bit boxed out in terms of getting to 23-plus points per game unless, man, he just is he's the guy at the goal line. I said, you know, basically his only path is if uh, Tom Brady just decides to hand off to his buddy Lenny a bunch, you know? And I, I think – now, does that mean he's a bad pick at the 2-3 turn? Does that mean he can't be an I told you so guy? I think he can be a good pick. Like, what's the difference between him – and Najee, like you're getting a round discount from Najee, sometimes more. You're making the same play. It's that he gets in a better offense. Yeah, a better offense. It's that he gets the high value stuff. Maybe you're, you're giving up some low value stuff compared to Najee, you're giving up snaps, but who cares? You're getting all the high value stuff and you're getting a, in a better offense, a team that's going to score a lot more touchdowns. So I don't think, you know, if, you're, if that's your bet, you know, I get it. But you, when you're making that bet, you're making it on an older running back who has been inefficient over the course of his career and who has a very talented receiving back coming in. At least I think his prospect profile indicates he's very talented. So I think there's a lot of existential risk with Leonard Fournette, and it creates a situation where he could be very much an I told you so guy from the fader. So I, I, I agree with that. that uh, yeah, the, the one more positive light that I twist on Fournette if you're making the pro for net case is the first few weeks of this season, he wasn't playing as many snaps and there was still like a little bit of him versus Rojo. And then when he took over, he was basically on 90 catch pace at a touchdown per game. And that doesn't include the playoff game in which he scored, you know, two touchdowns and was over 30 PPR points. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's one of those things where it's like, should you count all those games? Should you count the playoff games? Should you not? Because you can make some arguments both ways, and it, it'll look a lot better, a lot worse, depending on how you decide to chop it up. Um, but and it looks like has he's a, a little bit closer. Yeah. yeah. If, you can, if he can take a bigger chunk of the backfield, which maybe, you know, maybe he can, and there's a ton of value in that backfield. So I guess I'm not, like, worried that Fournette buries me by getting the 23-plus, but I am worried that, like, Look, if you take him at the 301 or 302 or whatever, and he gets 19, 20 points, that's a smash. Like, there is, yeah. as much as I talk about the legendary upside and everything, everything is price sensitive. And if you can get 20 plus points out of your third round pick, and it plays a low scoring position, which running back generally is outside of the, the highest scoring guys, you take that all day. 
All right, Pat, thank you so much for joining me. I hope the listeners learned a lot about why we're concerned about this legendary upside from the running back position, why you shouldn't just blindly take whichever running back is up based on ADP. You need to think through it a little bit more. The risk is so high that you want the adequate reward to be there, understanding that, yes, if they score 18 to 20 points, you can still be very useful, but that that should be our backup plan, not our primary plan. Pat, tell the people what you got going on over at NBC Sports Edge. Yeah, you can check out this article uh, on NBC Sports Edge or, if you prefer, on rotorworld.com. Type in whatever you want. Uh, Rotoworld's <laughs> back. <laughs> so I do prefer check- typing in Rotoworld. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, we, I was also, I got to be part of uh, Matthew Berry's uh, Fantasy Football Happy Hour. We did a mock draft there with Evan Silva, with Adam Levitin, with a bunch of the former Rotoworld greats. So uh, make sure you check that out. And uh, Rotoworld Football Show, which I'll, we're recording an episode of just after this uh check look for that on your podcast feeds of course you can follow me here at establish the edge podcast on itunes it's also on spotify other formats if you give it a, a like review that helps a lot also if you're watching on the established run youtube channel subscribe to our channel helps me keep doing content like this for free thanks for tuning I should also in mention, sorry ship there's a lot going on ship chasing tonight we're drafting main event with davis maddock and i'll also be on uh, pete Overzet's randomizer show so i heard davis is going to try and take you make you take one of these running backs so he wants us to take uh, zeke so it's gonna be a long night Ooh, okay that i mean i'm i'm kind of in the middle on this one so i just get to watch and enjoy from both perspectives um yeah so definitely check that out and yeah thanks for tuning in everybody catch you next time Thank you.